How many of you are enjoying the series through uh, Revelation, through the first two chapters, the seven letters to the seven churches? It really is so relevant to us today. Um, you know, there are different views about these sections in Revelation. There's different views about Revelation <laughs> as a whole and uh, timeline and all of that. But some, some, some people have the view that, that the seven letters to the seven churches are of views of different ages of the church. And some people have a view, like myself, that these were literal seven churches that actually existed uh, when, when John got the revelation, sent them to the churches. But whatever view you have, what is, re- what is powerful about God's word is that we can see in these letters to these churches how it applies to our life today. God's word is timeless. It meets us wherever we are, whatever generation that we're in. His truth is timeless and it is eternal and it meets our church, our life, but also our church as a whole. And so it has been very encouraging. This, this morning, this, this word to the church at Pergamum is going to be a challenging word. Uh, God's word just doesn't hold any punches. And so I'm just going to pray that God would help me to communicate it and help you to receive it. So would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you this morning and we do thank you for the privilege of gathering as your, as your church here at Living Word. God, we are your people. You set us apart. You've called us. You've saved us. You're sanctifying us. You're making us more like Christ. And one of the primary ways that you make us more like Christ is through the preaching and the hearing of the Word of God. And I pray that as the Word of God is taught today, that you would help all of us to apply it to our lives, that we would receive it with willing hearts, receptive hearts, and not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of your word. And God, I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church to the church at Pergamum. Be holy, for I am holy. God has made this statement in Holy Scripture. You see it in 1 Peter 1. It says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And 1 Peter the Apostle Peter is writing and he's referencing, he's saying, since it is written, he's pointing back to where? To the Old Testament. There's a couple of sections, but in, in particular, the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, God tells his people, I'm holy, therefore you be holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. The word holy, what does the word holy mean? It means to be set apart. It means to be separate. It means to be set apart. And so when God tells his people... You be holy, for I am holy. He's telling them that you need to be separate and separated from all of the things of the world, and you need to be holy, set apart unto me, and worship me alone in purity of heart and purity in your life. Be holy, be set apart, for I am holy. And this has always been the call for God's people. You know, sometimes when we read through our Bible reading plan or when we randomly decide to open to the book of Leviticus, we just randomly decide to do that. <laughs> We're going to study Leviticus. We study the ceremonial laws and we study the, the laws for the priest and we study the dietary laws and you read through it and you're like, okay, how does this apply to my life? I think this is how it applies to our lives. What does that mean? 
When God lays out these ceremonial laws and these dietary laws and the laws for the priests and the sacrifice and, and the temple and how all that will take place. What God is communicating in Leviticus in the Old Testament to his people is that you are called to be separate from the world. So in, in other cultures all around the nation of Israel, they would eat certain kinds of foods. And God says, no, you eat these foods. Right? These are the dietary laws. These are the ceremonial laws. These are the, the laws of righteousness and holiness in your life. You're to be set apart. And so people would read that and say, what's the point of all of that? The point of all of that is that God's people would be separate from the world and that they would be holy unto God. Right? And this has always been, been the call. Be separate. What fellowship does light have with darkness? How can we as believers, if we say that we are in the light and that we are following Christ and he is our Lord, how can we, if we say we have fellowship with the light, with Christ, how can we have communion or fellowship with darkness? Right? Be separate. Be holy for I am holy. From ancient Israel to Christ's followers today, all of God's people throughout generations, the call is the same. And this is what happens whenever we heed the call to live a holy life, to live separate from the world in our lifestyle, in our actions, in our affections, in our love. What happens is, is that we develop distinctions. What are distinctions? Distinctions are what set us apart. So there's certain distinctions about my life that set me apart from you, right? I distinctively love to play. Man, y'all know right away, right? I distinctively love to play golf, right? Some of you, what is golf? You're hunting a ball. I heard a, co- a comedian last night say that, that he, he's been doing a lot of ball hunting lately. And I knew right away what he meant. He played golf. He said he played and it took forever. It took forever to play. He scored a, a 121. And his, his playing partner said, hey, we got another nine holes to play. <laughs> but that distinctly sets me apart from a lot of you. There are a lot of hunters in this room. You love to hunt right now. It's cold. That cold front came through. Did hunting season start yet? Yeah, have you gone? Have you scratched that itch in the back of your neck that you get when the cold weather comes through yet? Right, we have distinctions that set us apart from one another. And as Christians, that should be the same in our life, that we should have distinctions. And this is what should happen when the unbelieving world, this is what, excuse me, excuse me, should not happen. When the unbelieving world cannot tell the difference between their lives and those who call themselves Christian, Christians, then there is nothing that gives the world pause about the direction of their life. That should be what we communicate to the world. Our lives, the way we are set apart unto the Lord, when we walk in love and patience and goodness and, 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 and purity of, of thought and action, when we live separate unto the Lord, it should give the world pause. They should look at us and think, hmm, what is it about them? Something's different. Be holy, for I am holy. And this is the test that the church of Pergamum is walking through. It's, it's actually the test of every church throughout history. Will we be holy unto the Lord? Will we walk in purity and holiness and righteousness as Christians? And will we demonstrate, will we demonstrate in our life so that those that are around us, not only in the body of Christ, but outside of the body of Christ, will we demonstrate to the world that we belong to Christ through our lives? And this is what we're going to look at. This is a test. So we are going to see how did the church at Pergamum do? Church at Pergamum. So just a little background, as I've done with each letter to each city. We've done a little background of the cities 
And so the city of Pergamum, at the writing of this letter, Pergamum had been the capital of Asia for 250 years. So this is a very significant city in, in Asia, which is now modern-day Turkey. And so this was the capital at the writing of this letter for over 250 years. Pergamum survives today as Ephesus. You remember we studied Ephesus. Ephesus does not exist anymore. It's just ruins right now. But Pergamum survives today. There's a, a community there, but it, now it's called, the, the, the city is called Ber, Bergama in, 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 in Turkey. Pergamum, here's another, here's a distinction about Pergamum, and we'll bring this up a little later in this message. Pergamum was known for its library. They were known for their knowledge and their study of literature. They had a, a library, and in, in this time, this was phenomenal, a library of over 200,000 books. So this was an amazing a, a, a capital, capital city of Asia, and they were knowledgeable, knowledgeable people. They, re, they were read, they studied, they, they, they loved to study culture. And they prided themselves in two things, the preservation and the defending of Greek culture. So they were educated. They were, uh, some of the educated elite were there, and they loved to read and to study and to preserve Greek culture and their history. And similar to Smyrna, though, Pergamum worshipped at the altar of the emperor, which is very common in this whole region. So emperor worship, as we talked about last week with Smyrna, what was one of the things that was a cause for persecution for the church? The church, Christians are not going to say, Caesar is Lord. We're not going to say that anybody is Lord but who? Jesus. And so this emperor worship was common in Pergamum as well. And Christians living in Pergamum would have been under the same kinds of persecutions mentioned in the previous letter because of that reality. So that's Pergamum, influential city, capital of Asia, high learning, high knowledge, lots of books, lots of study, preservation of Greek culture, emperor worship, persecution of Christians. Now to the letter, Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the of the, of the Nicolaitans, of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Some great things we're going to bring out God's word has here for uh, this church. It's a church at Pergamum, a literal church. But we're going to learn some things for our church and our lives here today. What do we see in this letter from Christ to the church at Pergamum? The first one is this. The church must hold fast to Christ. The church must hold on tightly to Christ. Look at the text. (laughs) Listen. Listen to what Christ tells this church. He says, I know where you live. I know where you dwell. Where does this church dwell? He says, where Satan's throne is. Yet, 
you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith. And even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The Lord begins this letter by letting this church know, I know where you dwell. And where does he say that they dwell? You dwell where Satan dwells. Did Satan actually live in Pergamum? Satan lives in one place at one time. He's not omnipresent. He's a created being, right? He's not like God. So I don't believe that Jesus is telling them that Satan actually dwells, his throne room, his throne, Satan's throne is in the city of Pergamum. What he's telling them is, is I know where you dwell and it feels like Satan's zip code is in your city. You're living in the midst of a city where it feels like Satan actually lives here. Have you been to to places where you thought, man, Satan lives right here? I'm not talking about your house. (laughs) Right? Maybe you feel like that at times. Satan, you are right here right now, right? This is bad business. Have you ever been places like that? You think, Satan lives here. This is so dark. The pain, the sin, the debauchery, the evil. The Lord is saying, look, I know you are living in the middle of deep satanic activity. This place is so bad. This is what he's saying to them. This place is so bad, it looks like Satan himself lives here. You are living in a dark time. You are living in a time and a society that's fully embraced idolatry and self-worship. The Lord is, this is what the Lord is telling them. And this society is thrown off accountability to the God of creation. So he's letting them know, I know where you dwell, and I know that it's difficult, and I know that the idolatry is everywhere. I know that people have thrown off restraint. I know that it's difficult. I know that the persecution is ramped up and it feels like Satan himself is knocking on the door every day. But notice what he says. Yet, you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. I mean, what a great commendation. What a great praise of this church. They were holding fast to the name of Christ in the middle of a culture that was rejecting Christ. They were holding fast to the name of Christ and to the faith. He says, you have held on to my faith. Holding on to Christ and to the faith that was delivered to them, to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the middle of a crazy culture. What a great great word that the Lord is giving them. The believers there were not giving in to the pressure of the culture around them to compromise their convictions. They were living Matthew 16. What does Matthew 16 say? Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. In the gates of hell, Satan's throne, wherever his gates are, wherever he lives and dwells, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And this church in Pergamum, they're holding fast to the name of Christ. They're holding on to the faith. They're not abandoning the faith. And the gates of hell are not prevailing against this church. They're not compromising. They're not giving up their conviction because the culture says that you, you can't believe in that, that there really is only one God. You can't believe there really is only one way to heaven. You can't believe in, in this ancient book. No, you can't believe in what God has spoken to you through the prophets and through the apostles. They're not compromising the faith. The church was holding fast. Notice the text there says, In the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. He says, even in the middle of death, and Antipas would have been one of the elders, one of the leaders of the church. 
text says there he was a faithful witness and he was killed for his faith. Even in the middle of those that you know and you love, the Lord is telling his church, you're holding fast to Christ. You have not denied my name. I mean, how powerful. That is so powerful. That, that, is, that is what we want. That's what we desire, that we would hold fast. The church must hold fast to Christ. This is what we see in the beginning of this letter. It's an admonishment to us that we must hold fast to Christ as well. The pressure is all around us today, is it not? Look around. The pressure is all around us today, and it can be feel overwhelming at times to, 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 to sense and to feel the, the amount of demonic pressure in our culture today. Just as in Pergamum, our society today prides itself on knowledge. We don't just have libraries of 200,000 books. We have at our fingertips access to countless worldviews that are in opposition to the truth of God's word. Take out your smartphone any moment, right? You can take it out. Well, what is it? We, 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 we will have conversations with people and we will ask questions about things that we need answers to uh, in our world. Like, you know, where can I find good Chinese food? And we're talking about it. And, and we stop for a minute and we think, oh, wait a minute. Let me ask Siri. Or we ask questions about history or whatever our questions are. We have dialogues with one another and we forget. Oh, let me grab my phone real quick. We type at our fingertips. We have access to way more than 200,000 books. We have access to worldviews and ideologies and beliefs that are completely opposite and opposing the truth of God's written word. And there's so much pressure for us to deny the faith, to reject Christ. So much pressure for us to say, Jesus is not the only way. So much pressure for us to say it's really just not worth it to live this Christian life. We're progressive now. We're intelligent now. We, 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 we have science and technology now that can, that can open up realms of understanding for us now. We don't need a first century book to tell us how we should live. We are growing in our knowledge today. And we have all this pressure to give up the faith, to deny the faith. The pressure to abandon our faith, to leave behind an old way of thinking is, is pervasive. It's strong. And this is the goal of the enemy to this church in Pergamum and to our church today. This is the same goal. The goal of the enemy is to slowly squeeze out any resistance to worldly, unbiblical ideology. Do you feel that? It's, it's, it's a day at a time, a month at a time, a year at a time. Society progresses further and further away from biblical truth. And the the pressure of the enemy in our lives as Christians is to slowly squeeze out resistance. We have to resist. We have to resist. We have to say no. No, 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 no. I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. I believe this is the word of God. I believe that God has revealed himself in creation and through his son Jesus and through his word. But when we are consuming technology, we're consuming information, we're, we're listening to different worldviews and ideas, the enemy gets into our brains and into our hearts, and it's a slowly, slow squeezing out of any resistance that we may have. And here's how it works. This is how it works. This is, this is how it works. The Word of God is clear. The Word of God draws distinctions. You remember earlier we were talking about our distinctions. And so the message of the gospel is offensive to the world. 
Because it tells them that they are wrong. So what happens is, is in our culture today, what is wrong is being called good. And so the pressure is for us to give up our stance and our convictions on all matters concerning human existence and life and the way we're called to live because the people that are living unbiblical ways are nice people. They're good people. And so the ideology is, well, well, how can you tell somebody living this lifestyle that they're wrong? They're a good person. They, 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 they live according to the law. They're, they pay their taxes. Leave them alone. Why, why, why keep this stance? And it's a pressure and it squeezes out our resistance to stand for biblical truth. But the church must hold fast to Christ. We cannot give it up, brothers and sisters. We must hold fast to Christ. God's word endures forever. It is true without error. And God is the creator. And as God is creator, he has designed us as human beings to function in ways that lead to human flourishing. And we see in our world a throwing off of that biblical standard and we do not see human flourishing. And so we will be like a group of people that the world looks at and says, are you still holding on to that? you still holding on to that? You just have hate speech. You're just, you're just narrow-minded, right? They'll put all kinds of labels on us. What one, and here's what, here's what can happen. If we get that pressure squeezes out our resistance, what one generation of Christians would have never embraced, the next generation finds it difficult to withstand the flood of arguments against biblical truth. What one generation of Christians would say, I would, we would have never embraced this type of sinful lifestyle, this type of, of sinful belief. The next generation, because, they've been, because they've, been, they've been slipping in this resistance against what the world says according to, in, in contrast to God's word, the next generation embraces it. And you have a compromising church. So, how, so the question is, how do we withstand? How do we withstand? How do we strengthen our resolve? Second Corinthians tells us how, chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. This is not a fleshly battle. This is not the church against people. This is not us against people. This is the word of God as the truth for humanity against ideologies and arguments. This is not a flesh-to-flesh battle. It's a battle of ideas and truth claims. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But the weapons we have, they have divine power to do what? To destroy strongholds. And what are the strongholds? Verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So here's what we do. We cast down. Every argument or thought raised against the truth of God by holding fast to the word of God. By holding fast to Christ. You may be the only one in your family right now that's doing that. That may be you right now. Maybe you live in a family. You're the only one holding fast to Christ. You're the only one holding fast to his word. Hang on. Hold on. The reward is great. You may be getting persecution even in the middle of your family. Maybe on your job you're the only Christian right now on your job. Hold fast 
to Christ. The reward in the end is worth it. Amen? Hold fast to Christ. The church must hold fast to Christ. We must not deny the faith. We must not deny the faith. Because the consequences, listen, the consequences of a failure to remain steadfast are what we see next in the letter. What do we see next? The next thing we see is this. Look back at the text, Revelation 2. But I have a few things against you. So the church was holding fast, not denying the faith, but I have these things against you. You have some, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and to practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The second thing we see here is that the church must remain unstained from the world. So the other day I went to the mail. And I remember specifically, I I go to the mail often, but I remember specifically as I was studying this, I remembered this specific day, a few days ago, I went to the mail, got the mail. You know, you get trash mail. And so the trash mail, you just, you just, I don't know, these companies waste their money. I don't know who's, who's got their strategy going on there, but I guess it does work. There's a percentage of it that works, but not on me. But I had some other mail that was in there, and it was important mail. So I'm walking into the house, and I'm headed to the trash can to throw away the trash mail, and I take the important mail, and I stick it on the table. So then, as I'm going to the trash can, the thought hits me, oh no, that cannot stay on the table, because it will get stained. There is no doubt. In a matter of moments, my seven-year-old and my three-year-old are going to walk in the door, and they're going to spill chocolate milk on it. They're going to spill tea on it. It will become stained. Without a doubt, it will become stained. So what do I do with precious information, mail from the mailbox? What do I do with it? I take it, and I'm going to protect it to keep it unstained. Because I know that those kids have no regard for anything that is valuable in my home at all. None. I have to tell them to quit swinging the baseball bat in the house. And the church, how much more precious is the bride of Christ than a, a letter from an insurance company? Right? How much more precious is the bride of Christ? We must remain unstained from the world. This is what The text is saying here, he says, yes, you have been holding fast to my name. You've not been denying the faith, but it's interesting. He says, not all. There's some in your midst who've been getting stained by the world. They've been embracing the things of the world. There's some, there's some. Compromise had entered the church. Some in the congregation had embraced pagan idolatry and sexual immorality. And he uses two illustrations, one primary illustration of Balaam and Balak. And that's the story in Numbers 22 through 24. I'm going to summarize the story for you. Balak, the king of Moab, tries to come to Balaam and says, I want you to curse the nation of Israel. You're somebody that I know can speak words and that God will listen to your words. And so would you curse Israel? And Balaam said, no. He said, well, I'm going to go inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said, don't curse what I have blessed. And, And then Balak comes back and says, well, we got some money. And he says, well, okay, I'll go pray about it now. 
I think I talked about this a few weeks back. Is our integrity for sale? Is there a price tag for obedience to God? God, I'll obey you, but then, man, if I could get a certain amount of money, I'll go inquire again, Lord. Is your word still true? Have you changed your mind? And God, God reluctantly, God reluctantly told Balaam, to go ahead and go with Balak. God said, it's a part of my judgment. You can go, 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 go with them. Testing Balaam. Was he going to obey God? God was displeased with Balaam. So the story goes that the way that Balaam eventually, he would not curse. He would not do it. He, 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 he didn't do it. But he gave a strategy to Balak, the king of Moab, as to a way that you can get to God's people. You, you get them to intermarry with you. Get the men to intermarry with pagan ladies of your, of, of your country. And then they're going to embrace idolatry. They're going to embrace sexual immorality. Do you remember back in Leviticus, the separation we were talking about? Get them to not separate, but to embrace those who don't follow the one true God. And this was a strategy. This was the strategy. So ungodliness, immorality, idolatry, and sin would bring a people down. Would bring a people down. This was the strategy, and it worked. And it worked. It, it also says that the text also mentions the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so we don't have in history of all that I've studied, the books I've read on this section, there's nothing in history that tells us specifically who they were or what they taught. But within this context, we can, we can safely say that it was a similar type of message of the, of the teaching of embracing idolatry and sexual immorality and embracing uh, food sacrificed to idols and worshiping of idols that have been similar in the similar vein, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so this is the truth that it's going on in this church at Pergamum. This is what was happening. This is what God's trying to get across to them is that a compromising church is a powerless church. If there's compromises in the church, its power is diminished. When we embrace the very things we've been redeemed from, we are joining in with the idolatry of the culture around us. And so what, what is idolatry? What is it that some in the church of Pergamum were embracing? What were the idols of the day? Well, there are many different idols of the day that they actually had literal item, idols made of wood and stone and metal that they would worship physical idols. But the idols they worship then are the same idols we worship today that just look a little different, right? What are some common idols in our culture? An idol, an idol is anything, idolatry and idol is anything that replaces the worship of the one true God. It's a replacement of the worship of the one true God. What was the first commandment in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other God before me, in front of me, ahead of me. So what are some common idols in our culture today that we are tempted to worship? How about money? How about money? I mean, this is what moves our culture, does it not? Look all around it. It's all about money. You want to know the truth? Follow the, follow the money. That's the saying. So, so we worship at the altar of money. How about recreation? I mean, we are a, I don't know what the, what the right word is here, we are a recreating, is that a word? We are a recreating country. We are a, a country of recreation. We love to go and to travel and to, to rest. We want to rest. We want to rest. We want to, we want to have pleasure. We want to, we, we want to we, you know, right? And nothing's wrong with recreation. We need recreation. But some people worship at the altar of recreation. How about sports? 
When an idol is sports, I mean, golf is not my idol. But, you know, just so you know, just making sure you know that it's not an idol in my life. My, my, my kids and my family won't let, won't let it be an idol. Um, but so many people, sports, it's their idol. It's what makes the world go around. Whether it's the sport they play or the sport they watch, it becomes an idol. Possessions, the things you can buy with money, becomes an idol that we worship. Alcohol. Alcohol becomes an idol. I mean, we live in an area, I mean, this is, this is an area that in, in American culture, and down south, certain times of year, alcohol, or all times throughout the year, but in particular, in one season of the year, alcohol, whether, you know, Saints games, Mardi Gras, different areas and times, we like to celebrate, we like to party, and alcohol can become an idol in our life. We are controlled and we worship our idols. Here's another one in our culture, sexual autonomy. It, it, it is an idol, and what this means is, is that I can be what I want to be sexually in my life. There's no standards, no parameters. I will be sexually whatever I want to be. And now, right now in our culture, the categories are limitless. Limitless. I heard the other day. I don't want you to laugh at what I'm going to say. Please don't laugh because it's not funny. But I heard the other day there's a new category for a, a a, a gender. You know, we, we have now transgender, and that's not anything new in our in cultures, but now there are people who have given another label called transtrender, meaning that there are those who just because it's trendy to be transgender, they are now they have a label called transtrender. And look, sexual autonomy, the, it's 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 limitless the ways in which people will seek to put labels on their life outside of what God has established in his word. And I just want to tell you here today, if you are struggling with this area of your life, the safest place, the best place that you can dwell is in the parameters that your creator has given you. This is the best way in which God has created. If you're struggling with your sexual identity, you're struggling with figuring out who you are sexually, we, I, I would love, our pastors, we'd love to sit and talk with you and help you walk through that so you can look at God's word and you can see the design for male and female that God has created for human flourishing. But sexual autonomy, autonomy is an idol we worship in our culture. Here's another one. Individual identity. It's all about us in our society. It's all about me, my ideas, what I think, what I believe, individual identity. And, and any, any opposing view, any opposing thought that is contrary to my individual identity, it's all about my self-worth. It's all about, it's all about my identity and who I am. And we worship on the altar of self. And so here's the problem. When we give ultimate devotion or allegiance to anything or anyone other than Christ alone as believers, we are being displeasing to the Lord who redeemed us and we lose our power to fight against the enemy and his plans. We become powerless. A compromising church becomes a powerless church. A compromising Christian in the area of sin in their life becomes a powerless Christian to accomplish what God has called them to accomplish. Do you remember in the book of Judges, the character Samson? Samson was one of the judges where the judges ruled and led the nation of Israel. Before there were kings, there were judges. And these judges would rule the nation of Israel. And Samson was a judge, but he was also a mighty warrior. And as, as a mighty warrior, as a judge, Samson took a Nazarite vow. 
And the Nazarite vow was that he would not cut his hair. He would not drink alcohol. He would not eat, he would not eat certain foods. And, and so he took that vow. And he was a mighty warrior, would destroy the enemies of the people of God. And then there became this woman that came and caught his eye. Her name was Delilah. Delilah began to be influenced by the enemies of the nation of Israel and the enemy of Samson. Samson was this mighty warrior, and they said, we have to put a stop to Samson. Delilah, you have to help us. Clearly, you have inroads with Samson here. So Delilah, day after day, would come to Samson. Please tell me the source of your strength. Tell me the source of your strength. And he wouldn't, he'd tell her something fake and the enemies would come in and he would break out of whatever she had done because of his lie and he would destroy, the enemies would come and try to attack him. But one day in a weak moment, he tells her the source of her strength that if he breaks his Nazarite vow, he cuts his hair, he, he breaks this separation between the pagan idolatry of the world and the worship of the one true God. He breaks his convictions. If he breaks those convictions, he loses his power. And look at Judges 16. Delilah made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him. And his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep. And Samson said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. What a terrifying next verse. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Wow. Why had the Lord removed his power and his blessing from Samson? He had compromised. He had embraced. He had embraced idolatry and sexual immorality and sin that stained his life. And he had broken his covenant between him and the Lord. And his power had left him. And he said, I'm going to go out as before. I'm going to break free. I'm going to trust in my flesh and in my ability. And he did not know that the Lord had left him. The, The church believers must remain unstained from the Lord, or we stand to be in the same position where we think we are strong, but really we are weak because we have embraced sexual immorality. We have embraced sin and idolatry in our life. Look back at the text. Listen to this. This is so profound to think about. Revelation 2.16, this is the same letter to Pergamum. He's saying, he's saying you've embraced Pergamum. You've embraced. There are some in your church that have embraced this idolatry and this sexual immorality taught by Balaam. He says, verse 16, therefore repent. If not, a threat from the Lord of the church. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Wow. Can you imagine reading that as a church? That the Lord is saying there are some in your midst that if you don't repent, I will come and war against you. With the sword of my mouth. What is the sword of his mouth? So there's no mistaking here. Revelation 19, later in the book. Listen to the sword of the mouth of the Lord of the church. Says this, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which with to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God, the Almighty. So what is the sword of the mouth? It's a sword of judgment. So the Lord is saying, 
to those within the church that if you do not repent, I will bring judgment into your life and you will be like Samson. Where you think you're going to rise up in the strength that God's given you, but you don't know that his strength and his blessing in your life has been removed because you have embraced compromise in your life. Why does it matter? Why such a strong picture and rebuke? Because holiness before the Lord matters. Because a holy life before the Lord reflects what he has done in our heart. Holiness matters, that we would live in a way that reflects who we are. Who are we as Christians? We're redeemed. We're born again. We used to embrace idolatry and sexual immorality and, and sin before Christ, but that's not who we are now. We've been given a new, a, a, a new name. We are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. So in light of what Christ has done in us, 2 Corinthians 6 Tells us this. Ask these questions. Tells us this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with, be, be, with Belial? With the enemy? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and, and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, remember, separation, nation of Israel, people of God in, in, in Israel, people of God in Pergamum, people of God in Shriver, in Homa. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, Samson. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. This is the call to the church. There are some in the church. And there are some here today. You are embracing right now sin and idolatry and sexual immorality. And the call to you, the call to you is to repent. To turn. Why? Because as a believer, it is not congruent with who you are. You're battling over that sin and the victory, the power is for you to understand that that lifestyle is who you used to be. Sexual immorality is not who you are now. You have been redeemed. You've been bought back. That's not who you are. Live according to your identity in Christ, not according to who you used to be. Being alcohol-driven is not who you are. Because you've been redeemed. Spending your life on possessions and earthly pleasures is not who we are. We have been redeemed. Living like I am the center of the universe is not who I am now. I've been redeemed. I love the the lyrics to a song. It's called I Shall Not Want. It's sung by a couple of different artists. One of them is Shane and Shane sings it. Audrey Assad sings it. I love these lyrics. I shall not want. Listen to this. From the love of my own comfort. From the fear of having nothing. From a life of worldly passions. Deliver me, O God. From the need to be understood. From the need to be accepted. From the fear of being lonely. Deliver me, O God. 
love the verse, I shall not want. I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. And that's the point. This is, this, is, this, is what, this is what it centers on for us as believers. This is what the revelation needs to be in our heart when we are tempted to go after idols and go after sin and pleasures of the world and make idols of the things that, 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 that we are never intended to worship. When we're tempted, we must remember that when we've tasted the goodness of God, there is nothing this world can offer that can satisfy like Christ. When I've tasted his goodness, I shall not so what do we see here today from this letter? We see that the church must hold fast to Christ. We must hold on to our convictions and our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church must remain unstained from the world. And we must reflect the work of the gospel that has transformed us. And now finally, what do we see this morning? We see there's a promise. We end with a promise. Do you like a promise? Are you ready for a promise? I'm ready for a promise. I love the promises of God's word. Here's the promise. The one, number three, the one who listens and conquers will receive heavenly rewards. Look back at the text. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So I just want to tell you, It says that this white stone has a new name on it and no one knows it except the one who receives it. So I don't know. So if you want to know what it is, I don't know. And neither do you. But it's going to be good. The promises to the one who listens and conquers will receive heavenly rewards. So here's the call to the church at Pergamum. Here's the call to our life and to our church. Hold fast to Christ. Do not deny the faith. Remain unstained from the world. Resist the temptations. Don't embrace the enemy's strategy to to make us powerless like Samson. I love the end of the story of Samson, don't you? He gets his eyes gouged out. I don't like that part. He's grinding at a wheel. But as he was grinding at that wheel day after day in the temple of the pagan idolatry of that area in that time, his hair began to grow. And the strength came back. So you, you may have cut your hair, but repent and let it grow. <laughs> repent and let it grow. Embrace your commitment to the Lord. Your strength will come back. So here's the promises to those who listen and conquer. Two promises, hidden manna. What, what's manna? You remember manna, nation of Israel? Do you know what manna actually means? Translated literally means, what is it? What is it? <laughs> so they looked at it and they said, what is this stuff? <laughs> right, it's heavenly food. It's heavenly food. Got some honey on it. It must be pretty good. Hidden manna. So manna... Manna is a, is a picture here of satisfaction from God. God will feed us. God will be our satisfaction. So to the one who hears, listens, not just hears, but listens and obeys and conquers, is faithful and perseveres, not perfectly, but faithfully, perseveres, 
you will be satisfied with heavenly food. I love what John 6 says. And Jesus begins to talk about this. Jesus says in John 6, starting in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Meaning that I'm going to give them my flesh in dying on the cross. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the hidden manna. So what do we receive in heaven as our eternal reward? We receive the Lord. Amen? He is our reward. I love this. This is so good. I was, when, 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 I, when I was writing this, and yeah, you can clap. Clap for the Lord. When I was studying this, to the one, to the one who conquers, you receive Christ. To the one who conquers, you receive Christ, the bread of life, the hidden manna, true satisfaction. To the one who conquers, to the people who have faithfully fought, not perfectly, we are saved. We are being saved. And one day we will be saved. In that middle ground, we win some battles. We lose some battles. We cut our hair a little while, but then it grows back. We get our strength back. We are being sanctified. But to the one who endures to the end, we will receive Christ. To the one who's endured worldly worldly pressures and temptations, the reward is true satisfaction in Christ. A white stone. Hidden man and now we have a white stone with a new name. The white stone is a picture, I I believe, the different interpreters see it different ways, but... I believe the white stone is a picture of the ultimate reward for the believer. It's, a, it's like a medal. It's a sign. It's a picture of, of the reward that you will receive, like a medal you will receive after winning an, an one of the Olympic Games. Over, overcomers are given the ultimate prize, which is entrance into heaven. Those who have placed their hope and faith in the work of Christ. Those who have looked at the pleasures of this present world and have seen them to pale in comparison to eternity with Christ. Those who reflect Romans 8. I love this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than... What did the text say? To those who conquer in Christ. You're more than a conqueror. That is some good news. When I, when I, when I was reading this and, and, and I, I was trying to figure out how I'm going to end this message, I were, just was reminded of Romans 8. Has, it says, Paul says, we are more than conquerors. Revelation there, it says, to those who conquer, you're going to receive these rewards. The beauty is, is that in Christ, we are more than conquerors. So it means we're definitely going to receive the rewards. We're not just a conqueror. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, Christ Jesus our Lord. What a great reward. That is the reward. Whatever that new name is, I don't know. I don't know what that new name is. It's going to be awesome. I'm curious. Are you curious? curious, but I'm more interested in seeing Christ. 
I'm more interested in seeing his throne. I'm more interested in worshiping him with the 24 elders. I'm more interested in in spending eternity with him. And we will receive all of that here today if we are more than conquerors through him. So if you're here today, you want to know how to become more than a conqueror? Receive heavenly rewards? Escape the wrath of God and the judgment of God? You must throw all of your faith over onto Christ. And you can receive everything the scripture says belongs to you in Christ. As strong as the pressure may be, as relentless as the temptations may come, we are more than conquerors through him. I love this. Philippians 2, we end with this. Philippians 2 says this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? It means that we live with the fear of God in the middle of this pagan society. That we work out, we live out. To work out means to live out our salvation with fear and trembling. God, it is only by your grace. God, I'm committing to you and to your ways with fear and reverence of your holiness and your purity. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And here's how we become more than conquerors, right here. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amen? The compro- yes, the compromising church can become the victorious church. Those that are compromising now, you can repent, you can return, you can do the works you did at first. You can, be, you can be a conqueror, but it's through him. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word here today. Uh, your word is so powerful. We're learning so much, Lord, from these letters to these churches. And Lord, may we be as the Christians in Pergamum who held on to the faith and not deny your name. And may we not be Christians that you rebuked in, in Pergamum that have been living duplicitous lives. Lives that say one thing with our mouths but live a different way with our lives. Lord, may we not compromise our convictions. May we not cut our hair as a sign of our commitment to you. But may we have convictions so that we can be powerless, a powerful and not powerless. We thank you for what your word teaches us here today, that all of this truth centers on you. Though we may feel weak and overwhelmed at times, it is through your strength that we can be overcomers and more than conquerors. We thank you for these things. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Now, now look, you can still cut your hair. (laughs) You guys got what I was saying, right? Amen.